RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. All right, it's Monday morning, and that's time for our health hacks feature here at Reality Check Radio. Dr. Glenn Davies of ReversalNZ.co.nz with us again. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Feeling good. And um, hopefully those who have been sending in feedback, emails, and texts will feel good after we address some of those. Um, where do you want to start? There's a, there's a really interesting question that um, stimulated my thinking. It was, um, I'm sorry, I didn't record who the person was who asked the question, but it's, can you stay on keto forever? Can you stay on a ketogenic diet forever? And I went, now that is a really, really good question. So um, when I thought about this in terms of evolutionary bi- evolutionary biology, hmm. uh, I imagine that at, for long periods of time, our caveman and cavewoman ancestors uh, were ketogenic for their entire lives, including um, childhood, pregnancy, and old age. So the answer to this question must be yes. But I would then take it another step further is, do you need to stay on keto forever? I would consider the ketogenic diet to be a medical nutrition therapy. It's a very, very strong therapy that you would put in place to cure a medical problem. So it could cure epilepsy. It could be part of a cancer treatment program. It could cause the reversal of diabetes. But once you've done that, I would suggest that you could probably ease off a little bit for most Mm. people. And most people could move to a low carb diet. The amount of carbohydrate would vary for each person, but I think they could ease off a little bit so that there's more variety in the diet, so that there's more uh, a bigger combination of macronutrients, micronutrients. So I think the answer to the question is, as it so often is, yes and no. Okay. Uh, a lot of people probably will stay on it for life, but many people could ease off. Okay, and it's pretty obvious where the uh, tipping point would be. Like you say, you know, you, you've got over these issues of, let's say, d- diabetes type 2 under control, blood pressure is down, all those things. So there's some pretty obvious markers that can give you a um, a sort of a line in the sand where you can sort of ease off if you didn't want to stay doing that forever. That's that's exactly true. So, yep. yeah, yes and no is the answer. Okay, but if you want to sail on that way, it's kind of okay? Yeah, I, I think it must be because our genes haven't changed. We, You and I, Paul, we've still got caveman genes. Yeah. You know, it takes 20,000 years for the genes of a population to adapt to a major environmental change. Wow, okay. You know, we've only had agriculture, for example, for 10 to 12,000 years. So we still have pre-agricultural uh, genes. You know, we basically still have hunter and gatherer genes, um, not sit down and eat bowls of cereal genes. You know, so I That's still, what, 10,000 years away? <laughs> yeah. You know, so in 10,000 years, I think it would be fine to sit down to a bowl of wheat picks. But for now, it's the hunter-gatherer type diet we should be on. That's interesting. Boy, it takes a, a bit of time to turn the ship around or even alter yeah. the course. Interestingly, the first time we saw evidence of these um, 
sugar-related uh, illnesses is in Egyptian mummies. And um, therefrom, I think, now I could be wrong on this, but I think that's around 12,000 years ago. I think Egypt was one of the first places where agriculture started. You know, so that's the first time that we saw some of these modern diseases like osteoarthritis. Um, so I would advocate a diet which is close to a hunter-gatherer diet. Okay, interesting. All right, I see uh, on the list, Alan had a question. Yeah, so Alan has said, uh, can you discuss some of the low-carbohydrate alternatives? So, yeah, I thought just to answer that really simply, most of the low-carbohydrate alternatives use almond flour rather than wheat flour. Uh, the almond flour is much higher in protein and lower in carbs. So you find most often when people are making alternatives, uh, they will use almond flour. So basically look for almond flour. Um, another example is almond milk. Um, you know, that's a good example of a lower carbohydrate um, milk. So yes, yeah, thanks for the question, Alan. You can, you can certainly find uh, low-carb alternatives to everything. My comment would be, uh, if you're looking for a low-carb bread, it's pretty hard to find one that doesn't taste like the main ingredient is sawdust, uh, <laughs> unless you make it yourself. You can make some really nice low-carb breads yourself, but most of the commercial ones uh, don't taste as good as what they're trying to replicate. Um, so, yeah, make your own. Yeah. Okay, and um, I mean, all that uh, almond milk and all, that's all good for you, healthy, is it? Because it's relatively new on the scene, or am I, yeah. no, did I'm I thinking, just not notice it before? No, I'm thinking uh, these milk alternatives are new ideas because a lot of people have determined that they have intolerance to gluten and dairy products, so they're looking for alternatives, so gluten-free flours and alternatives to dairy protein or lactose. Um, so you're finding all of these milk alternatives, which um, taste pretty good, by, by the way. I'm, I'm a big fan of almond milk. I, I like that. I have got in trouble before from dairy farmers, and I'm an absolute fan of farming and New Zealand farming practices. So I'm not advocating that you avoid milk unless you have a dairy intolerance. You know, um, so I really want to support New Zealand farmers. They are out there leading the world. And um, if we didn't have our farming industry, our whole economy would be in significant problems. Good point. Um, and when it comes to gluten intolerance and what dairy intolerance, it, do you think, I mean, is that um, is that a thing or are some people sort of like a bit, a bit like hypochondriacs when it, when it comes to that, it becomes a bit of a fad. I mean, I don't want to put any, any, you know, cast any aspersions or make anyone sound like they're over the top, but you just wonder that if it can become fad-like, what do you no, think about I, that? I would say, um, good question, but the answer is no. I think uh, a lot of irritable bowel syndrome uh, is probably related to food intolerance, um, plus other things. And I think it's just that we haven't recognized it before, but it is getting worse because as we hybridize grains, for example, uh, we increase the gluten content. So uh, if you look at some of these traditional wheats, 
the gluten content was very much lower than it is now. And I expect most people have a threshold. Uh, and as we're seeing these hybridized um, wheats, for example, come onto the market, you know, we cross people's threshold for symptoms much earlier. Um, and then a um, little note about dairy intolerance. People can be intolerant to the protein or they can be lactose intolerant. You know, so um, just think about, about that. Uh, and also 50% of people who react to dairy protein cross-react with soy protein. So if you are doing an experiment to determine if your irritable bowel symptoms are related to dairy, don't substitute um, soy milk. Um, perhaps substitute almond milk uh, for that experiment, which probably needs to be around three weeks. That's a good amount of time to exclude something completely from your diet to determine if your symptoms improve. And has irritable bowel gone up in numbers? I would say absolutely yes. Um, I think probably in the past, you know, to come back to your question, I think in the past we probably put up with symptoms that we just, I don't know, we put up with. Now I think um, we are probably more likely to address those symptoms, which is good, because I think that irritable bowel syndrome is inflammation, and inflammation is behind all chronic health conditions. So I don't think we should be ignoring that gripey tummy or uh, loose bowel motions after uh, eating something that we might be intolerant to. Rightio, moving on. Sandra is asking, can we discuss the benefits of a vegetarian or vegan diet? Of course, we, we can yeah. discuss that, can't we? Yeah, and I'm, I'm really thrilled you've asked that, that question, Sandra, because, um, you know, my interest in metabolic illness began with the ketogenic diet. And so I've, I've entered this, this area from that direction. And I tend to talk about ketogenic diets a lot. However, in doing that, I don't want to disregard the huge benefits of a vegetarian and vegan diet. Um, you know, and when you look at the, the research on that, um, we know that vegan or vegetarian diets, or probably the better term is whole food plant-based diets, we know that there's huge advantages in them and that they're very high in nutrients. You know, a lot of the minerals and vitamins come from the plants that we eat, and particularly phytonutrients, uh, which um, talking about mitochondria again, they have a, a really huge role in that uh, concept of, um, uh, I'm forgetting the term here, but separating the, or reducing the free radicals created by the, um, by the electron transport chain. They are the only diets, to my knowledge, that have been shown to reverse heart disease. So a low-fat vegan diet has been demonstrated um, by Dean Ornish and Caldwell Esselstein to reverse heart disease. You know, so that's extraordinary. And, you know, there's no medication that can reverse heart disease. So, you know, that's really important. They're high in fiber. And we recognize that fiber is important for the microbiome. And we've spoken about that. Um, I think it was about a month ago, uh, we spoke about the microbiome. You know, the fiber and the fruits and vegetables are important. They've been demonstrated to be a fantastic tool for weight loss. They've been demonstrated to lower blood sugar and in places reverse diabetes. They can reduce cancer risk. 
Um, but there's also the environmental and ethical issues associated uh, with the choice to eat animal products. So um, I'm really pleased that Sandra's um, asked that question. The way I look at it is that both a ketogenic diet and a low-fat vegan diet are both medical nutrition therapies. They are powerful, strong interventions that will reverse medical problems, particularly metabolic disorders. So, so yes, although I talk a lot about keto diets, I will equally prescribe a low-fat vegan diet uh, if that's the preference of my client and it's the most indicated diet. Do you have to be careful, though, how you craft those sort of mix of food if you're following vegetarian or vegan, you know, the way it's, you know, the way the components come together and what you're actually consuming? Yeah, I, I think any medical nutrition therapy requires quite a lot of skill and knowledge. And the more you take it to the, um, the more extreme end, like when you go from low carb to keto or you go from vegetarian to vegan, you have to increase your knowledge uh, because as you move to each extreme in both directions, you run the risk of, um, of nutrient deficiency. On the vegetarian and vegan end, uh, you'd have to be careful about iron and B12 and probably, not always, but probably sub, um, supplement with vitamin B12 and iron if you're on a vegan diet. But equally, you know, if you go right to the carnivore end, you might need to become cognizant of, you know, moving the keto end now, obviously, cognizant of your vitamin C levels, for example. So, you know, I, I think it's a bit like politics, uh, far left and far right. Um, you know, you have to be uh, careful on both ends, you know, so so I, I, I think it just requires knowledge and um, thought. So keto would be the right and uh, vegetarian vegan would be the left, do you think? Oh, you're, you're <laughs> trying to bait me and you're clearly trying to get me into, um, into trouble there. Yeah, um, yeah. I have no comment. Okay, no comment. Well, that's very, that's the way politicians handle it. No comment. All right. So I think I've heard you talking about the SAD diet before, and it's kind of aptly named, isn't it? Yeah. So Jeff asked this question. He said, uh, what is the SAD diet? So it's the standard American diet, so acronym uh, SAD. But in Australia, they talk about the standard Australian diet. So I thought we needed to talk about the standard New Zealand diet, but it doesn't work. So it's the standard Aotearoa diet. Okay. Um, basically, it means any diet that's high in ultra-processed foods, which is high in sugar, um, high in refined uh, grains, for example, and it will contain those horrible vegetable oils like canola oil. And this is what's poisoning mitochondria. This is what's causing the ill health. And even if we were as simple as getting rid of sugar, getting rid of the ultra-processed carbohydrates, and getting rid of the polyunsaturated vegetable oils like canola oil, we would probably, just by those three simple interventions, I reckon fix a vast majority of these metabolic illnesses that we are facing. So the SAD diet, um, standard American diet, is, is what it refers to. Wow. So easy to make such a big difference, really. That's the yeah. thing. 
Yeah, it is. And the problem is that all those foods are cheap. And the foods that we're talking about on the show so often, um, vegetables, um, you know, your broccoli, your cauliflower, um, meat, fish, chicken, mm -hmm. you know, they're much more expensive and, and hence the problem. Two-minute noodles are cheap. Well, you could substitute some of that with some of the health budget. Yeah, that's right. You know, the problem is that political cycles are th three years, aren't they? But these interventions take often decades to see the impact. So we need to be looking into the future with, with some of these decisions, not just the three-yearly political cycle. A sad diet, all right. Okay, Vicky is asking, can we recommend specific supplement brands? Um, so thank you, Vicky. Um, I think it's probably wiser that I don't. Um, you know, I think it's, but it's probably a good idea to go into your health food shop and um, and ask the people in there. They will they will know. But yeah, we try and stay away from recommending specific uh, brands. Fair enough. Okay. Taking vitamin D, K2, and MG++, you'll know what that is, has helped with depression. That's interesting. So Linda sent us um, quite a long um, text, and, yeah, it was it was awesome for your feedback, Linda. She was just saying that she was has been taking supplements, vitamin D with K2 and magnesium, which is the MG++, and uh, her depression has improved significantly. So, you know, thank you for that feedback. And when you think about the neurotransmitters, the chemicals in the brain, and you realize that all of those vitamins and minerals are necessary to make them, if someone has a deficiency, they're not going to be making them, correct the deficiency and start making them again, it will make sense that anxiety or depression would improve. Have you seen that in, you know, in what you do, uh, improvement in, you know, things like depression, anxiety, just from a, a change in, in sort of the input of, of nutrition? Yeah, absolutely, Paul. And uh, we've spoken about this before on the show, but um, Dr. Julia Rucklidge, uh, who is a researcher in Christchurch, um, please, um, anyone that's interested in this, look at her TEDx talk. Um, it's on um, uh, nutritional psychiatry, and um, she uses high doses of minerals and vitamins to manage all sorts of uh, mental health conditions, including ADHD and autistic spectrum disorder in children. I think the ADHD research is probably the most exciting. So Julia Rutledge, um, using just minerals and vitamins, this new area of psychiatry called nutritional psychiatry, just 20 years old, but um, that's that's what I base my uh, mental health program around. Okay, and I've got turmeric here. Was that part of what Linda was asking about, or is that something separate? And that sounds like um, some kind of wonder wonder yeah. herb or drug or, or whatever you call it yeah it is um so so turmeric absolutely um it's an antioxidant it's got anti-cancer um, properties uh, curcumin is the active ingredient uh, but the point that uh the uh, listener who um made the comment was making is that if you activate uh, the turmeric it's far more effective and 
I had a little look at this before I came on, up to 2,000 times more potent if you activate it. So what you do is you mix it with black pepper um, and then you heat it in coconut oil. And if you do that, um, it can be 2,000 times uh, more potent. Wow. Um, okay, that's a lot. Yeah, uh, it's called um, piperine. Uh, P-I-P-E-R-I-N-E is the substance in the black pepper uh, that affects the absorption of the curcumin. So, yeah, sorry, not 2,000 times, 2,000%, so 20 times uh, more potent. So Still impressive. Um, okay, yeah. And what I like to do is I like to um, put my coconut oil in the pan, <clears throat> add the turmeric, um, heat it, and then add my eggs because it makes them go this freaky orange color, which is kind of cool. Yeah, okay. All right. So um, that's interesting. Um, 2,000%. That's, that's not hard to do. Vitamin no. C. How much uh, liposomal is it? Liposomal. Liposomal, yeah. Liposomal. Enough in oranges. Those are three separate questions surrounding uh, the subject or the, uh, the query on vitamin C. Yeah, yeah. So vitamin C. So the highest absorption um, comes from liposomal. So that means it's um, Fatty. put inside a, a fat-containing um, molecule, which allows it to be absorbed more easily. So, yes, liposomal is, um, gives you the highest uh, oral absorption. You, you only get higher absorption from the intravenous uh, vitamin C. How much vitamin C? Now, um, the, we talk about increasing the amount uh, until bowel tolerance. So when you get vitamin C above a certain amount, you start getting flatulence and a little bit of diarrhea, and yep. then you just dial it back. But interestingly, if you're really sick, you can absorb a whole lot more vitamin C uh, until your bowel gets upset compared with if you're not sick. That's you know, interesting. So I've heard of people um, who are, very, very unwell, being able to take about 20 grams orally at one time, whereas most people would tolerate probably only about one gram of, that's just of the ascorbic acid um, powder. So that's that's interesting. People with acute glandular fever, for example, there's a program where you take a gram every hour um, until until you get diarrhea and then ease off. So, so yeah. And the last uh, question was, can you get enough from oranges? Um, that's a really good question. Um, I think probably well people would get enough vitamin C from their food, but people who have a medical condition, particularly an infection, would probably need higher amounts. And then people who particularly are unwell with, like, for example, cancer, they're probably not even going to get enough from the oral supplements, and they would consider the intravenous vitamin C. Right. Okay. Well, you could eat lots of oranges. <laughs> yeah. Um, and interestingly, oranges aren't the highest um, vitamin C containing fruit. It's blueberries. Okay. Or blackberries, actually. Um, there was quite an interesting um, story behind this, but uh, there was a glut of oranges in the United States. And so the oranges producers went to the marketing companies and the marketing companies did a big marketing campaign on the vitamin C content of oranges. Um, it's the marketers that, that have promoted this. Uh, oranges are the best source of vitamin C, uh, not the nutritionists or dietitians.
to the point where a lot of the product is orange. Yeah, I remember, you know, the right. tablet colors, yes. uh, you know, orange. It should be dark purple. <laughs> okay. Yeah, see, those, um, that sort of backstory is interesting. Osteoarthritis, which supplement someone is asking? Yeah. So I think vitamin C is going to be very, very important. The fish oils, which are your, your omega 3 supplements, are going to be important. Um, interestingly, if you're on a whole food plant based diet, then flaxseed oil is the um, omega 3 supplement uh, from the whole food plant based side. Um, whereas fish oil, uh, generally, uh, if that's not a concern of yours. Um, and then probably magnesium is going to be the other big thing. So I'd be looking at vitamin C, uh, the fish oils, which is highly anti-inflammatory, and the magnesium is my key ones for osteoarthritis. But I'd always throw in the multivitamin uh, plus the healthy diet. Okay. We're getting to the end of our list here. Claire, screening controversies. Hmm, what's that about? Yeah, so Claire, thank you for that. Um, it's a really, really valid point. So by screening, we're talking about cervical smears, mammograms, uh, prostate screening for men over the age of around 50. And, and Claire made a really valid point. She says, yes, there's a lot of um, positives, but also be aware of the negatives. And yeah, I think that is that is very important topic to talk about. So in talking about this, Paul, I don't want to discourage people from having their screening tests but you know i think it's important to realize with every benefit there's always a cost so the first one is over diagnosis you know so these tests are designed not to miss anyone so they have a high sensitivity but they will have um false negative, false positives, I mean, there'll be false positives associated with it. And if you get a false positive result, you then have to go and have another test. Uh, and it creates a lot of anxiety. So I think every time you have a screening test, you have to be prepared that it's designed to overdiagnose because it doesn't want to miss anyone. And therefore, you might get the idea that you've got a particular condition and then find out that you don't. Um, another one is these issues with access and equality, particularly in rural areas. You know, you don't have the same access to these screening tests. There's a cost effectiveness issue. You know, um, we screen a lot of people for bowel cancer to pick up a very small number of bowel cancers. Uh, that costs a lot of money. Um, you know, it's the accountants uh, that have to think about that issue. And then we have to think about these age recommendations. You'll, you will have noticed quite often they're talking about bringing the screening age down, um, you know, or probably more important, when do you stop screening? And prostate cancer is the really interesting issue. Um, we stop screening for prostate cancer at 70, but there are a lot of very well people in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, in that's fact, right. Yeah. I went to a 94th uh, birthday uh, on Sunday, amazing event. Uh, he had an opera singer and a pianist. Um, he wins at Patonk, he wins at snooker, he wins at chess, um, he plants native trees. That is an extremely well vibrant 94 year old. 
wow. compared with a lot of 70-year-olds who um, are probably less well than him. So these arbitrary age recommendations, you know, I think are potentially a problem. We we also, we need to look at our metabolic age, not necessarily our chronological age. You know, you yourself uh, are a young man, uh, metabolically younger than your chronological age, I would uh, suggest. Oh, that's good to know. Thank you. I'm feeling better already. <laughs> that's uh, good advice because I know what it's like to, to be screened and have bad news and and it was kind of uh, bad news at the time. But uh, that can get you into a bit of a low place at that moment. It's not necessarily all said and done at that point, is what you say. Yeah, but it is important, the final comment, to say that um, I believe appropriate screening is really important for picking up conditions in their early stages when there is the greatest chance of um, yeah. remedying the situation. So, so yeah, um, absolutely a fan of appropriate screening but also really useful. And thank you, Claire, that we do talk about the negative side as well. Okay. And we're at the bottom of our list now. No name attribution to this question. And, and this is probably a huge, expansive answer, potentially. When to take each supplement? Does that mean, do you think, during the day? What time of the day? Yeah. 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 Um, I had to do a little bit of research on this one because it's a, a really good question. Um, but just four important points. The first one, multivitamins, um, best to be taken with a meal because it improves the absorption, particularly of the fat-soluble vitamins, so A, D, E, and K. So your multivitamin you take with your breakfast, I guess. B vitamins, uh, take them in the morning because they increase energy, and some people will stay awake uh, when they take B vitamins at night. Um, probiotics on an empty stomach. Um, I didn't know that one. So, um, so yeah, the advice was probiotics on an empty stomach and fish oils um, with a meal. Um, again, uh, increases the absorption of fat-soluble vitamins. Uh, magnesium at night, because uh, magnesium helps with sleep and it potentiates the effect of melatonin. And the last one I picked up, calcium with food. Um, so, better absorption. Oh, the last one, you don't take iron and calcium at the same time um, because they counteract the absorption of each other. So iron supplements and calcium supplements taken at separate times. All right. Well, we've worked our way through that list. And thank you to everybody for sending in those questions and comments to Health Hacks. And uh, they'll build up again over time. Um, Glenn, and we can sort of kind of do this uh, again sometime um, at <clears throat> sort of at an appropriate uh, juncture, as they say, because uh, I'm sure that uh, that informs people. A lot of people would have had those questions anyway. So um, yeah. we've addressed those. So thanks for going through that. That was great. And thank you, Paul. And, and I'd like to thank the, the listeners because there is a very highly intelligent, uh, educated um, bunch of people uh, listening to the show, not not presumably as a consequence of anything you and I have said, but um, you know the the quality of the questions I think reflects the um, the quality of the listeners to Reality Check Radio. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with that. Nicely put. Okay, so let's do it all again in a week's time, Glenn. Thanks again. 
Okay, thank you, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.